Book One, Chapter Six of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Six. Agnes, if you want any tea, here it is. Cried Rose, calling from outside the dining room window, and tell Mamma. It was the first of June, and the spell of warmth in which Robert Ellesmere had arrived was still maintaining itself. An intelligent foreigner dropped into the flower-sprinkled valley might have believed that, after all, England, and even northern England, had a summer. Early in the season as it was, the sun was already drawing the colour out of the hills. The young green, hardly a week or two old, was darkening. Except the oaks. They were brilliance itself against the luminous grey-blue sky. So were the beeches, their young downy leaves just unpacked, tumbling loosely open to the light. But the larches and the birches and the hawthorns were already sobered by a longer acquaintance with life and Phoebus. Rose sat fanning herself with a portentous hat, which, when in its proper place, served her, apparently, both as hat and as parasol. She seemed to have been running races with a fine collie, who lay at her feet panting, but studying her with his bright eyes, and evidently ready to be off again at the first indication that his playmate had recovered her wind. Chatty was coming lazily over the lawn, stretching each leg behind her as she walked, tail arched, green eyes flaming in the sun, a model of treacherous beauty. "'Chatty, you fiend, come here!' cried Rose, holding out a hand to her. "'If Miss Barks were ever pretty, she must have looked like to you at this moment.' "'I won't have Chatty put upon,' said Agnes, establishing herself at the other side of the little tea-table. "'She's done you no harm.' "'Come to me, beastie. I won't compare you to disagreeable old maids.' The cat looked from one sister to the other, blinking. Then, with a sudden magnificent spring, leaped onto Agnes's lap, and curled herself up there. "'Nothing but cupboard, love,' said Rose scornfully, in answer to Agnes's laugh. "'She knows you will give her bread and butter, and I won't, out of a double regard for my skirts and her morals. "'Oh, dear me! Miss Barks was quite seraphic last night.' She had never made a single remark about my clothes, and she didn't even say to me, as she generally does, with an air of compassion, that she quite understands how hard it must be to keep in tune. "'The amusing thing was Mrs. Seaton and Mr. Ellesmere,' said Agnes. "'I just love, as Mrs. Thornburg said, to hear her instructing other people in their own particular trades. She didn't get much change out of him.' Rose gave Agnes her tea, and then, bending forward with one hand on her heart, said in a stage whisper, with a dramatic glance round the garden, "'My heart is whole. How is yours?' "'Intact,' said Agnes calmly, as that French bric-a-brac man in the Brompton Road used to say of his pots. "'But he is very nice.' "'Oh, charming! But when my destiny arrives—' And Rose, returning to her tea, swept her little hand with a teaspoon in it eloquently round. "'He won't have his hair cut close.' I must have luxuriant locks, and I will take no excuse. Un chevalier de poète, the eye of an eagle, the moustache of a hero, the hand of a Rubenstein, and, if it pleases him, the temper of a fiend. He will be odious, insufferable for all the world besides, except for me, and for me he will be heaven. She threw herself back, a twinkle in her bright eye, but a little flush of something half-real on her cheek. No doubt, said Agnes dryly, but you can't wonder if, under the circumstances, I don't pine for a brother-in-law. To return to the subject, however, Catherine liked him. She said so. Oh, that doesn't count, replied Rose discontentedly. Catherine likes everybody of a certain sort, 
and everybody likes Catherine. "'Does that mean, Miss Hasty, said her sister, "'that you've made up your mind Catherine will never marry?' "'Marry?' cried Rose. "'You might as well talk of marrying Westminster Abbey.' Agnes looked at her attentively. Rose's fun had a decided lack of sweetness. "'After all,' she said demurely, "'St. Elizabeth married.' "'Yes, but then she was a princess. Reasons of state. If Catherine were her royal highness, it would be her duty to marry, which would just make all the difference.' "'Duty! I hate the word!' And Rose took up a fur cone lying near, and threw it at the nose of the collie, who made a jump at it, and then resumed an attitude of blinking and dignified protest against his mistress's follies. Agnes again studied her sister. "'What's the matter with you, Rose?' "'The usual thing, my dear,' replied Rose curtly. "'Only more so. I had a letter this morning from Carrie Ford, the daughter, you know, of those nice people I stayed in Manchester with last year. Well, she wants me to go and stay the winter with them, and study under a first-rate man, Franson, who is to be in Manchester two days a week during the winter.' I haven't said a word about it. What's the use? I know all Catherine's arguments by heart. Manchester is not Windale, and Papa wishes us to live in Windale. I am not somebody else, and needn't earn my bread, and art is not religion, and— Wheels! exclaimed Agnes. Catherine, I suppose, home from Winborough. Rose got up and peered through the rhododendron bushes at the top of the wall which shut them off from the road. Catherine and an unknown. Catherine driving at a foot's pace, and the unknown walking beside her. "'Oh, I see, of course, Mr. Ellesmere. "'He will come in to tea, so I'll go for a cup. "'It is his duty to call on us to-day.' "'When Rose came back in the wake of her mother, "'Catherine and Robert Ellesmere were coming up the drive. "'Something had given Catherine more colour than usual, "'and as Mrs. Leyburn shook hands with the young clergyman, "'her mother's eyes turned approvingly to her eldest daughter. "'After all, she is as handsome as Rose,' she said to herself, "'though it is quite a different style.' Rose, who was always tea-maker, dispensed her wares. Catherine took her favourite low seat beside her mother, clasping Mrs. Leyburn's thin, mittened hand a while, tenderly in her own. Robert and Agnes set up a lively gossip on the subject of the Thornburg's guests, in which Rose joined, while Catherine looked smiling on. She seemed apart from the rest, Robert thought, not clearly by her own will, but by virtue of a difference of temperament which could not but make itself felt. Yet, once, as Rose passed her, Robert saw her stretch out her hand and touch her sister caressingly, with a bright upward look and smile, as though she would say, "'Is all well? Have you had a good time this afternoon, Roshan?' Clearly the strong contemplative nature was not strong enough to dispense with any of the little wants and cravings of human affection. Compared to the main impression she was making on him, her suppliant attitude at her mother's feet and her caress of her sister were like flowers breaking through the stern March soil and changing the whole spirit of the fields. Presently he said something of Oxford, and mentioned Merton. Instantly Mrs. Laban fell upon him. Had he ever seen Mr. S., who had been a fellow there, and Rose's godfather? "'I don't acknowledge him,' said Rose, pouting. "'Other people's godfathers give them mugs and corals. Mine never gave me anything but a concordance.' Robert laughed and proved to their satisfaction that Mr. S. had been extinct before his day. But could they ask him any other questions? Mrs. Leyburn became quite animated, and, diving into her memory, produced a number of fragmentary reminiscences of her husband's Queen's friends, asking him for information about each and all of them. The young man disentangled all her questions, racked his brains to answer, 
and showed all through a quick friendliness, a charming difference as of youth to age, which confirmed the liking of the whole party for him. Then the mention of an associate of Richard Leyburn's youth, who had been one of the Tractarian leaders, led him into talk of Oxford changes and the influences of the present. He drew for them the famous High Church preacher of the moment, described the great spectacles of his Bampton lectures, by which Oxford had been recently thrilled, and gave a dramatic account of a sermon on evolution preached by the hermit veteran Pusey, as though by another Elias returning to the world to deliver a last warning message to men. Catherine listened absorbed, her deep eyes fixed upon him, and though all he said was pitched in a vivacious narrative key and addressed as much to the others as to her, inwardly it seemed to him that his one object all through was to touch and keep her attention. Then, in answer to inquiries about himself, he fell to describing St. Anselm's with enthusiasm, its growth, its provost, its effectiveness as a great educational machine, the impression it had made on Oxford and the country. This led him naturally to talk of Mr. Gray, then next to the provost the most prominent figure in the college, and once embarked on this theme he became more eloquent and interesting than ever. The circle of women listened to him as to a voice from the large world. He made them feel the beat of the great currents of English life and thought. He seemed to bring the stir and rush of our central English society into the deep quiet of their valley. Even the bright-haired Rose, idly swinging her pretty foot, with a head full of dreams and discontent, was beguiled, and for the moment seemed to lose her restless self in listening. He told an exciting story of a bad election riot in Oxford, which had been quelled at considerable personal risk by Mr. Gray, who had gained his influence in the town by a devotion of years to the policy of breaking down, as far as possible, the old venomous feud between city and university. When he paused, Mrs. Laban said vaguely, "'Did you say he was a canon of somewhere?' "'Oh, no,' said Robert, smiling. "'He is not a clergyman.' "'But you said he preached,' said Agnes. "'Yes, but lay sermons, addresses. "'He is not one of us, even, according to your standard and mine.' "'A nonconformist?' sighed Mrs. Laban. "'Oh, I know they have let in everybody now.' "'Well, if you like,' said Robert. "'What I meant was that his opinions are not orthodox. "'He would not be a clergyman, but he is one of the noblest of men.' He spoke with affectionate warmth. Then suddenly Catherine's eyes met his, and he felt an involuntary start. A veil had fallen over them. Her sweet, moved sympathy was gone. She seemed to have shrunk into herself. She turned to Mrs. Laban. "'Mother, do you know I have all sorts of messages from Aunt Ellen?' And in an undervoice she began to give Mrs. Laban the news of her afternoon expedition. Rose and Agnes soon plunged young Hillsmere into another stream of talk. But he kept his feeling of perplexity. His experience of other women seemed to give him nothing to go upon with regard to Miss Laban. Presently Catherine got up and drew her plain little black cape round her again. "'My dear,' remonstrated Mrs. Laban, "'where are you off to now?' "'To the back-houses, mother,' she said in a low voice. "'I have not been there for two days. I must go this evening.' Mrs. Laban said no more. Catherine's musts were never disputed. She moved towards Ellesmere with outstretched hand, but he also sprang up. "'I too must be going,' he said. "'I have paid you an unconscionable visit. If you are going past the vicarage, Miss Laban, may I escort you so far?' 
she stood quietly waiting while he made his farewells. Agnes, whose eye fell on her sister during the pause, was struck with a passing sense of something out of the common. She could hardly have defined her impression, but Catherine seemed more alive to the outer world, more like other people, less nun-like than usual. When they had left the garden together, as they had come into it, and Mrs. Leyburn, complaining of chilliness, had retreated to the drawing-room, Rose laid a quick hand on her sister's arm. "'You say Catherine likes him? Al, what is a great deal more certain is that he likes her.' "'Well,' said Agnes calmly, "'well, I await your remarks.' "'Poor fellow,' said Rose grimly, and removed her hand. Meanwhile, Ellesmere and Catherine walked along the valley road towards the vicarage. He thought, uneasily, she was a little more reserved with him than she had been in those pleasant moments after he had overtaken her in the pony-carriage. But still she was always kind, always courteous. And what a white hand it was, hanging ungloved against her dress! What a beautiful dignity and freedom, as of mountain winds and mountain streams, in every movement! "'You are bound for High Gill?' he said to her, as they neared the vicarage gate. "'Is it not a long way for you? you? You've been at a meeting already, your sister said, and teaching this morning.' He looked down on her with a charming diffidence, as though aware that their acquaintance was very young, and yet with a warm eagerness of feeling piercing through. As she paused under his eye, the slightest flush arose in Catherine's cheek. Then she looked up with a smile. It was amusing to be taken care of by this tall stranger. "'It is most unfeminine, I am afraid,' she said. "'But I couldn't be tired if I tried.' Elsmere grasped her hand. "'You make me feel myself more than ever a shocking example,' he said, letting it go with a little sigh. The smart of his own renunciation was still keen in him. She lingered a moment, could find nothing to say, threw him a look all shy sympathy and lovely pity, and was gone. In the evening Robert got an explanation of that sudden stiffening in his auditor of the afternoon, which had perplexed him. He and the vicar were sitting smoking in the study after dinner, and the ingenious young man managed to shift the conversation on to the Leyburns, as he managed to shift it once or twice before that day, flattering himself, of course, on each occasion that his manoeuvres were beyond detection. The vicar, good soul, by virtue of his original discovery, detected them all, and with a sense of appropriation in the matter, not at all unmixed with the sense of triumph over Mrs. T, kept the ball rolling merrily. "'Miss Leyburn seems to have very strong religious views,' said Robert, apropos of some remark of the vicar's as to the assistance she was to him in the school. "'No, she is her father's daughter,' said the vicar genially. He had his oldest coat on, his favourite pipe between his lips, and a bit of domestic carpentry on his knees at which he was fiddling away, and— being perfectly happy, was also perfectly amiable. Richard Laban was a fanatic, as mild as you please, but immovable. What line? Evangelical, with a dash of Quakerism. He lent me Madame Guillon's life once to read. I didn't appreciate it. I told him that for all her religion she seemed to me to have a deal of the vixen in her. He could hardly get over it, nearly broke our friendship. But I suppose he was very like her, except that, in my opinion, his nature was sweeter. He was a fatalist, saw needings of providence in every little thing. Such a dreamer! When he came to live up here just before his death, and all his active life was taken off him, 
I believe half his time he was seeing visions. He used to wander over the fells and meet you with a start as though you belonged to another world than the one he was walking in. And his eldest daughter was much with him? The apple of his eye. She understood him. He could talk his soul out to her. The others, of course, were children. And his wife, well, his wife was just what you see her now, poor thing. He must have married her when she was very young and very pretty. She was a squire's daughter somewhere near the school of which he was master. Good family, I believe. She'll tell you so in a ladylike way. He was always fidgety about her health. He loved her, I suppose, or had loved her. But it was Catherine who had his mind. Catherine, who was his friend. She adored him. I believe there was always a sort of pity in her heart for him, too. But at any rate, he made her and trained her. He poured all his ideas and convictions into her. Which were strong? How commonly. For all his gentle, ethereal look, you could never bend nor break him. I don't believe anybody but Richard Laban could have gone through Oxford at the height of the Oxford movement, and, so to speak, have known nothing about it, while living all the time for religion. He had a great deal in common with the Quakers, as I have said, a great deal in common with the Wesleyans, but he was very loyal to the Church all the same. He regarded it as the golden mean. George Herbert was his favourite poet. He used to carry his poems about with him on the mountains, and an expurgated Christian year, the only thing he ever took from the high churchman, which he had made for himself, and which he and Catherine knew by heart. In some ways he was not a bigot at all. He would have had the church make peace with the dissenters. He was all for upsetting tests so far as nonconformity was concerned. But he drew the most rigid line between belief and unbelief. He would not have dined at the same table with the Unitarian if he could have helped it. I remember a furious article of his in the record against submitting Unitarians to the universities, or allowing them to sit in Parliament. England is a Christian state, he said. They are not Christians. They have no rights in her except on sufferance. Well, I suppose he was about right, said the vicar with a sigh. We're all so half-hearted nowadays. Not he, cried Robert hotly. Who are we that, because a man differs from us in opinion, we are to shut him out from the education of political and civil duty? But never mind, Cousin William, go on. Well, there's no more that I remember, except that, of course, Catherine took all these ideas from him. He wouldn't let his children know any unbeliever, however apparently worthy and good. He impressed it upon them as their special sacred duty, in a time of wicked enmity to religion, to cherish the faith and the whole faith. He wished his wife and daughters to live on here after his death, that they might be less in danger spiritually than in the big world, and that they might have more opportunity of living the old-fashioned Christian life. There was also some mystical idea, I think, of making up through his children for the godless lives of their forefathers. He used to reproach himself for having in his prosperous days neglected his family, some of whom he might have helped to raise. "'Well, but,' said Robert, "'all very well for Miss Laban,' But I don't see the father and the two younger girls. Ah, there is Catherine's difficulty, said the vicar, shrugging his shoulders. Poor thing! How well I remember her after her father's death. She came down to see me in the dining-room about some arrangement for the funeral. She was only sixteen, so pale and thin with nursing. I said something about the comfort she had been to her father. She took my hand and burst into tears. He was so good, she said. I loved him so. Oh, Mr. Thornburg, help me to look after the others. 
and that's been her one fault since then. That, next to following the narrow road. The vicar had begun to speak with emotion, as generally happened to him whenever he was beguiled into much speech about Catherine Laban. There must have been something great somewhere in the insignificant elderly man. A meaner soul might so easily have been jealous of this girl, with her inconveniently high standards, and her influence surpassing his own in his own domain. "'I should like to know the secret of the little musician's independence,' said Robert, musing. "'There might be no tie of blood at all between her and the elder, so far as I can see.' "'Oh, I don't know that. There's more than you think, or Catherine wouldn't have kept her hold over her, so far as she has. Generally she gets away, except about the music. There Rose sticks to it.' "'And why shouldn't she?' "'Well, you see, my dear fellow, I'm old enough, and you're not.' to remember what people in the old days used to think about art. Of course, nowadays we all say very fine things about it, but Richard Labour would no more have admitted that a girl who hadn't got her own bread or her family's to earn by it was justified in spending her time in fiddling than he would have approved of her spending it in dancing. I've heard him take a text out of the imitation and lecture rose when she was quite a baby for pestering any stray person she could get hold of to give her music lessons. Woe to them! Yes, that was it, that inquire many curious things of men, and care little about the way of serving me. However, oh, he wasn't consistent. Nobody is. It was actually he that brought Rose her first violin from London in a green baize bag. Mrs. Laban took me in one night to see her asleep with it on her pillow, and all her pretty curls lying over the strings. I dare say, poor man, it was one of the acts towards his children that tormented his mind in his last hour. She certainly had a way about practising it. She plays superbly. Oh, yes, she has had her own way. She's a queer mixture, is Rose. I see a touch of the old labour and recklessness in her. And then there is the beauty and refinement of her mother's side of the family. Lately she's got quite out of hand. She went to stay with some relations they have in Manchester, got drawn into the musical set there, took to these funny gowns, and now she and Catherine are always a half at war. Poor Catherine said to me the other day, with tears in her eyes, that she knew Rose thought her as hard as iron. But what can I do, she said. I promised Papa. She makes herself miserable, and it's no use. I wish the little wild thing would get herself well married. She's not meant for this humdrum place, and she may kick over the traces. She's pretty enough for anything and anybody, said Robert. The vicar looked at him sharply. But the young man's critical and meditative look reassured him. The next day, just before early dinner, Rose and Agnes, who had been for a walk, were startled, as they were turning into their own gate, by the frantic waving of a white handkerchief from the vicarage garden. It was Mrs. Thornburg's accepted way of calling the attention of the Burwood inmates, and the girls walked on. They found the good lady waiting for them in the drive in a characteristic glow and flutter. "'My dears, I've been looking out for you all this morning. "'I should have come over but for the stores coming, "'and a tiresome man from Randall's. "'I've had to bargain with him for a whole hour "'about taking back those sweets. "'I was swindled, of course, but we should have died "'if we'd had to eat them up. "'Well, now, my dears.' "'The vicar's wife paused. "'Her square, short figure was between the two girls. "'She had an arm of each, "'and she looked significantly from one to other, "'her grey curls flapping across her face as she did so.' "'Go on, Mrs. Thornburg,' said Rose. "'You make us quite nervous.' "'How do you like Mr. Thalesmere?' 
she inquired solemnly. "'Very much,' said both in chorus. Mrs. Thornburg surveyed Rose's smiling frankness with a little sigh. Things were going grandly, but she could imagine a disposition of affairs which would have given her personally more pleasure. "'How would you like him for a brother-in-law?' she inquired, beginning in a whisper, with slow emphasis, patting Rose's arm, and bringing out the last words with a rush. Agnes caught the twinkle in Rose's eye, but she answered for them both demurely. "'We have no objection to entertain the idea. But, but you must explain.' "'Explain?' cried Mrs. Thornburg. "'I should think it explains itself. At least if you've been in this house the last twenty-four hours, you'd think so. Since the moment when you first met her, it's been Miss Laban, Miss Laban, all the time. One might have seen it with half an eye from the beginning.' Mrs. Thorberg had not seen it with two eyes, as we know, till it was pointed out to her, but her imagination worked with equal liveliness backwards or forwards. "'He went to see you yesterday, didn't he? Yes, I know he did. And he overtook her in the pony-carriage. The vicar saw them from across the valley, and he brought her back from your house, and there he kept William up till nearly twelve, talking of her. And now he wants a picnic. Oh, it's as plain as a pikestaff, and, my dear, nothing to be said against him.' fifteen hundred a year, if he's a penny. A nice living, only his mother to look after, and as good a young fellow as ever stepped." Mrs. Thorberg stopped, choked almost by her own eloquence. The girls, who had by this time established her between them on a garden seat, looked at her with smiling composure. They were accustomed to letting her have her budget out. "'And now, of course,' she resumed, taking breath, and chilled a little by their silence, "'now, of course, I want to know about Catherine.' She regarded them with anxious interrogation. Rose, still smiling, slowly shook her head. "'What?' cried Mrs. Thornburg, then with charming inconsistency. "'Oh, you can't know anything in two days!' "'That's just it,' said Agnes, intervening. "'We can't know anything in two days. No one ever will know anything about Catherine, if she takes to anybody, till the last minute.' Mrs. Thornburg's face fell. "'It's very difficult when people would be so reserved.' she said dolefully. The girls acquiesced, but intimated that they saw no way out of it. "'At any rate, we can bring them together,' she broke out, brightening again. "'We can have picnics, you know, and teas, and all that, and watch. Now listen.' And the vicar's wife sketched out a programme of festivities for the next fortnight she had been revolving in her inventive head, which took the sister's breath away. Rose bit her lip to keep in her laughter. Agnes, with vast self-possession, took Mrs. Thornburg in hand. She pointed out firmly that nothing would be so likely to make Catherine impracticable as fuss. In vain is the net spread, etc. She preached from the text with a worldly wisdom which quickly crushed Mrs. Thornburg. "'Well, what am I to do, my dears?' she said at last, helplessly. "'Look at the weather. We must have some picnics, if only to amuse Robert.' Mrs. Thornburg spent her life between a condition of effervescence and a condition of feeling the world too much for her. Rose and Agnes, having now reduced her to the latter state, proceeded cautiously to give her her head again. They promised her two or three expeditions, and one picnic at least. They said they would do their best. They promised they would report what they saw and be very discreet, both feeling the comedy of Mrs. Thornburg as the advocate of discretion, and then they departed to their early dinner leaving their vicar's wife decidedly less self-confident than they found her. "'The first matrimonial excitement of the family,' cried Agnes as they walked home, 
So far, no one could say the Miss Leyburns have been besieged. "'It will be all moonshine,' Rose replied decisively. "'Mr. Ellesmere may lose his heart. We may aid and abet him. Catherine will live in the clouds for a few weeks, and come down from him at the end with an air of an angel to give him his coup de grace. As I said before, poor fellow!' Agnes made no reply. She was never so positive as Rose, and on the whole did not find herself the worst for it in life. Besides, she understood that there was a soreness at the bottom of Rose's heart that was always showing itself in unexpected connections. There was no necessity, indeed, for elaborate schemes for assisting Providence. Mrs. Thornburg had her picnics and her expeditions, but without them Robert Ellesmere would have been still man enough to see Catherine Leyburn every day. He loitered about the roads along which she must needs pass to do her many offices of charity. He offered the vicar to take a class in the school, and was naively exultant that the vicar curiously happened to fix an hour when he must needs see Miss Lowburn going or coming on the same errand. He dropped into Burwood on any conceivable pretext, till Rose and Agnes lost all inconvenient respect for his cloth, and Mrs. Leyburn sent him on errands. And he even insisted that Catherine and the vicar should make use of him at his pastoral services in one or two of the cases of sickness or poverty under their care. Catherine, with a little more reserve than usual, took him one day to the Tysons, and introduced him to the poor crippled son, who was likely to live on paralysed for some time, under the weight, moreover, of a black cloud of depression which seldom lifted. Mrs. Tyson kept her talking in the room, and she never forgot the scene. It showed her a new aspect of a man whose intellectual life was becoming plain to her, while his moral life was still something of a mystery. The look in Ellesmere's face, as he sat bending over the maimed young farmer, the strength and tenderness of the man, the diffidence of the few religious things he said, and yet the reality and force of them, struck her powerfully. He had forgotten her, forgotten everything save the bitter human need, and the comfort it was his privilege to offer. Catherine stood answering Mrs. Tyson at random, the tears rising in her eyes. She slipped out while he was still talking, and went home strangely moved. As to the festivities, she did her best to join in them. The sensitive soul often reproached itself afterwards for having juggled in the matter. Was it not her duty to manage a little society and gaiety for her sisters sometimes? Her mother could not undertake it, and was always plaintively protesting that Catherine would not be young. So for a short week or two Catherine did her best to be young, and climbed the mountain grass, or forded the mountain streams, with the energy and the grace of perfect health, trembling afterwards at night as she knelt by her window, to think how much sheer pleasure the day had contained. Her life had always had the tension of a bent bow. It seemed to her once or twice during this fortnight as though something was suddenly relaxed in her, and she felt a swift bunion-like terror of backsliding, of falling away. But she never confessed herself fully. She was even blind to what her perspicacity would have seen so readily in another's case, the little arts and manoeuvres of those about her. It did not strike her that Mrs. Thornburg was more flighty and more brilliant than ever, that the vicar's wife kissed her at odd times, and with a quite unwonted effusion, or that Agnes and Rose, when they were in the wild heart of the mountains, or wandering far and wide in search of sticks for a picnic fire, showed a perfect genius for avoiding Mr. Ellesmere, whom both of them liked, and that in consequence his society almost always fell to her. Nor did she ever analyse what would have been the attraction of those walks to her without that tall figure at her side, that bounding step, 
that picturesque, impetuous talk. There are moments when nature throws a kind of heavenly mist and dazzlement round the soul it would fain make happy. The soul gropes blindly on. If it saw its way, it might be timid and draw back, but kind powers lead it genially onward through a golden darkness. Meanwhile, if she did not know it herself, she and Ellesmere learnt with wonderful quickness and thoroughness to know each other. The two households, so near together and so isolated from the world besides, were necessarily in constant communication, and Ellesmere made a most stirring element in their common life. Never had he been more keen, more strenuous. It gave Catherine new lights on modern character altogether, to see how he was preparing himself for this Surrey living, reading up the history, geology, and botany of the Weald and its neighbourhood, plunging into reports of agricultural commissions, or spending his quick brain on village sanitation, with the oddest results sometimes, so far as his conversation was concerned. And then, in the middle of his disquisitions, which would keep her breathless with a sense of being whirled through space at the tail of an electric kite, the kite would come down with a run, and the preacher and reformer would come hat in hand to the girl beside him, asking her humbly to advise him, to pour out on him some of that practical experience of hers among the poor and suffering, for the sake of which he would in an instant scornfully fling out of sight all his own magnificent plannings. Never had she told so much of her own life to any one. Her consciousness of it sometimes filled her with a sort of terror, lest she might have been trading, as it were, for her own advantage on the sacred things of God. But he would have it. His sympathy, his sweetness, his quick spiritual feeling drew the stories out of her. And then how his bright frank eyes would soften! With what a reverence would he touch her hand when she said good-bye! And on her side she felt that she knew almost as much about Muirwell as he did. She could imagine the wild beauty of the Surrey heathland. She could see the white square rectory with its sloping walled garden, the juniper common just outside the straggling village. She could even picture the strange squire, solitary in the great Tudor hall, the author of terrible books against the religion of Christ, of which she shrank from hearing, and share the anxieties of the young rector as to his future relations towards a personality so marked and so important to every soul in the little community he was called to rule. Here all was plain sailing. She understood him perfectly, and her gentle comments, or her occasional sarcasms, were friendliness itself. But it was when he turned to larger things, to books, movements, leaders of the day, that she was often puzzled, sometimes distressed. Why would he seem to exalt and glorify rebellion against the established order in the person of Mr. Gray? Or why, ardent as his own faith was, would he talk as though opinion was a purely personal matter, hardly in itself to be made the subject of moral judgment at all, and as though right belief were a blessed privilege and boon, rather than a law and an obligation? When his comments on men and things took this tinge, she would turn silent, feeling a kind of painful opposition between his venturesome speech and his clergyman's dress. And yet, as we all know, these ways of speech were not his own. He was merely talking the natural Christian language of this generation, whereas she, the child of a mystic, solitary, intense, and deeply reflective from her earliest youth, was still thinking and speaking in the language of her father's generation. But although, as often his unwariness brought him near to these points of jarring, he would hurry away from them, conscious that here was the one profound difference between them. It was clear to him that insensibly she had moved further than she knew from her father's standpoint. 
Even among these solitudes, far from men and literature, she had unconsciously felt the breath of her time in some degree. As he penetrated deeper into the nature, he found it honeycombed, as it were, here and there, with beautiful, unexpected softnesses and diffidences. Once, after a long walk, as they were lingering homewards under a cloudy evening sky, he came upon the great problem of her life, Rose and Rose's art. He drew her difficulty from her with the most delicate skill. She had laid it bare, and was blushing to think how she had asked his counsel, almost before she knew where their talk was leading. How was it lawful for the Christian to spend the few short years of the earthly combat in any pursuit, however noble and exquisite, which merely aimed at the gratification of the senses, and implied in the pursuer the emphasising rather than the surrender of self? He argued it very much as Kingsley would have argued it, tried to lift her to a more intelligent view of a multifarious world, dwelling on the function of pure beauty in life, and on the influence of beauty on character, pointing out the value to the race of all individual development, and pressing home on her the natural religious question, how are the artistic aptitudes to be explained unless the great designer meant them to have a use and function in his world? She replied doubtfully that she had always supposed they were lawful for recreation, unlike any other trade for breadwinning, but— then he told her much that he knew about the humanising effect of music on the poor. He described to her the efforts of a London society, of which he was a subscribing member, to popularise the best music among the lowest class. He dwelt almost with passion on the difference between the joy to be got out of such things and the common brutalising joys of the workman. And you could not have art without artists. In this again he was only talking the commonplaces of his day. But to her they were not commonplaces at all. She looked at him from time to time, her great eyes lightening and deepening, as it seemed, with every fresh thrust of his. "'I am grateful to you,' she said at last, with an involuntary outburst. "'I am very grateful to you.' And she gave a long sigh, as if some burden she had long borne in patient silence had been loosened a little, if only by the fact of speech about it. She was not convinced exactly. She was too strong a nature to relinquish a principle without a period of meditative struggle in which conscience should have all its dues. But her tone made his heart leap. He felt in it a momentary self-surrender, that, coming from a creature of so rare a dignity, filled him with an exquisite sense of power, and yet at the same time with a strange humility beyond words. A day or two later he was the spectator of a curious little scene. An aunt of the Leyburns, living in Winborough, came to see them. She was their father's youngest sister, and the wife of a man who had made some money as a builder in Winborough. When Robert came in, he found her sitting on the sofa having tea, a large, homely-looking woman with grey hair, a high brow, and prominent white teeth. She had unfastened her bonnet-strings, and a clean white handkerchief lay spread out on her lap. When Ellesmere was introduced to her, she got up, and said with some effusiveness and a distinct Westmoreland accent, "'Very pleased indeed to make your acquaintance, sir,' while she enclosed his fingers in a capacious hand. Mrs. Leyburn, looking fidgety and uncomfortable, was sitting near her, and Catherine, the only member of the party who showed no sign of embarrassment when Robert entered, was superintending her aunt's tea and talking busily the while. Robert sat down at a little distance beside Agnes and Rose, who were chattering together a little artificially, and of set purpose, as it seemed to him. But the aunt was not to be ignored. 
She talked too loud not to be overheard, and Agnes inwardly noted that as soon as Robert Ellesmere appeared she talked louder than before. He gathered presently that she was an ardent Wesleyan, and that she was engaged in describing to Catherine and Mrs. Laban the evangelistic exploits of her eldest son, who had recently obtained his first circuit as a Wesleyan minister. He was shrewd enough, too, to guess, after a minute or two, that his presence, and probably his obnoxious clerical dress, gave additional zest to the recital. "'Oh, his success at Goldsbrook has been something marvellous," he heard her say, with uplifted hands and eyes. "'Something marvellous! The Lord has blessed him indeed. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's meetings, or sermons, or parlour work, or just faithful dealings with souls one by one. Satan is no cliver of foe than Edward. He never shuts his eyes, as Edward says himself. It's like tracking for game is hunting for souls. Why, the other day he was walking out from Coventry to a service. It was the Sabbath, and he saw a man and a bit of grass by the roadside mending his cart. And he stopped, did Edward, and gave him the word strong. The man seemed puzzled-like, and said he meant no harm. No harm, said Edward, when you've just done the devil's work every nail you put in, and hammering away more at your own damnation. But here's his letter. And while Rose turned away to a far window to hide an almost hysterical inclination to laugh, Mrs. Fleming opened her bag, took out a treasured paper, and read with the emphasis and the unction peculiar to a certain type of revivalism. Poor sinner! He was much put about. I left him, praying the Lord my shaft might rankle in him. I might fester and burn in him till he found no peace put in Jesus. He seemed very dark and destitute, no respect for the word or its ministers. A bit farther I met a boy carrying a load of turnips. To him, too, I was faithful, and he went on, taking, without knowing it, a precious leaflet with him in his bag. Glorious work! If Wellington's will but go on claiming even the highways for God, sin will skulk yet. A dead silence. Mrs. Fleming folded up the letter and put it back into her bag. "'There's your true minister,' she said, with a large judicial utterance as she closed the snap. "'Wherever he goes, Edward must have souls.' And she threw a swift, searching look at the young clergyman in the window. "'He must have very hard work with so much walking and preaching,' said Catherine gently. Somehow, as soon as she spoke, Ellesmere saw the whole odd little scene with other eyes. "'His work is just wearing him out,' said the mother fervently. "'But a minister doesn't think of that. Wherever he goes there are sinners saved. He stayed last week at a house near Nuneaton. A family prayer alone there were five saved, and at the prayer-meetings of the Sabbath such outpourings of the Spirit. Ebba comes home, his wife tells me, just ready to drop. "'Are you acquainted, sir?' she added, turning suddenly to Ellesmere, and speaking in a certain tone of provocation. "'With the labours of our Wesleyan ministers?' Uh, "'No,' said Robert, with his pleasant smile. "'Not personally. But I have the greatest respect for them as a body of devoted men.' The look of battle faded from the woman's face. It was not an unpleasant face. He even saw strange reminiscences of Catherine in it at times. "'You're a boot right there, sir. Not that they dare take any credit to themselves. It's grace, sir, all grace.' "'Aunt Ellen,' said Catherine, while a sudden light broke over her face, "'I just want you to take over a little story from me. Ministers are good things, but God can do without them.' And she laid her hand on her aunt's knee, with a smile in which there was the slightest touch of affectionate satire. 
"'I was up among the fells the other day,' she went on. "'I met an elderly man cutting wood in a plantation, "'and I stopped and asked him how he was. "'Ah, miss,' he said, "'very weel, very weel. "'Yet it was no but Friday morning last "'I came up here, awful bad in my spirits, like, "'for my wife, she's sick, and had dwelt away, "'and I'm getting old, and can't work as I used to, "'and it looked to me as though there was nothing for, for us "'no but to union. "'And mist were low and fells, "'and I sat out at to well, wettish and brooding like. And there, all of a sudden, the Lord found me. Yes, pure Reuben Judge, as don't matter to nobody, the Lord found him. It would leak as though his face came a-glistering and a-shining through to mist. And ever since then, miss, I've just felt as though I was good at cut and stacked all the wood on the fell in no time at all. And he waved his hand round the mountainside, which was covered with plantation, and all the way along the path for ever so long I could hear him singing, chopping away, and quavering out Rock of Ages. She paused, her delicate face, with just a little quiver in the lip, turned to her aunt, her eyes glowing as though a hidden fire had leapt suddenly outward. And yet the gesture, the attitude, was simplicity and unconsciousness itself. Robert had never heard her say anything so intimate before, nor had he ever seen her so inspired so beautiful. She had transmuted the conversation to touch. It had been barbarous prose. She had turned it into purest poetry. Only the noblest souls have such an alchemy as this at command, thought the watcher on the other side of the room, with a passionate reverence. "'I wasn't thinking of narrowing the law down to ministers,' said Mrs. Fleming, with a certain loftiness. "'We all know he can do without us pure worms.' Then, seeing that no one replied, the good woman got up to go. Much of her apparel had slipped away from her in the fervours of revivalist anecdote, and while she hunted for gloves and reticule, officiously helped by the younger girls, Robert crossed over to Catherine. "'You lifted us on to your own high places,' he said, bending down to her. "'I shall carry your story with me through the fells.' She looked up, and as she met his warm, moved look, a little glow and tremor crept into the face, destroying its exalted expression. He broke the spell. She sank from the poet into the embarrassed woman. "'You must see my old man,' she said with an effort. "'He is worth a library of sermons. I must introduce him to you.' He could think of nothing else to say just then, but could only stand impatiently wishing for Mrs. Fleming's disappearance, that he might somehow appropriate her eldest niece. But alas, when she went, Catherine went out with her, and reappeared no more, though he waited some time. He walked home in a whirl of feeling. On the way he stopped, and leaning over a gate which led into one of the river fields, gave himself up to the mounting tumult within. Gradually, from the half-articulate chaos of hope and memory, there emerged to the deliberate voice of his inmost manhood. In her and her only is my heart's desire. She and she only, if she will, and God will, shall be my wife. He lifted his head and looked out on the dewy field, the evening beauty of the hills, with a sense of immeasurable change. Tears were in his eyes and in his ears the murmur of a thousand years. He felt himself knit to his kind, to his race, as he had never felt before. It was as though, after a long apprenticeship, he had sprung suddenly into maturity, 
entered at last into the full human heritage. But the very intensity and solemnity of his own feeling gave him a rare clear-sightedness. He realised that he had no certainty of success, scarcely even an entirely reasonable hope. But what of that? Were they not together, alone practically, in these blessed solitudes? Would they not meet to-morrow, and next day, and the day after? Were not time and opportunity all his own? How kind her looks are, even now! Courage! And through that maidenly kindness his own passion shall send the last transmuting glow. End of Book One Chapter Six